Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. Uh, we forgot to mention this last week, but we went and saw a ghost. Our first ritual. Our first ritual. Ghost is uh, by far one of my favorite bands. And I can I know it <laughs> is for you as well. Yeah, I'm really into them. It was the best performance I've ever been to. 100%. And we learned that so much goes on at the ghost concerts. Like they, they put on a whole show, like each of the ghouls or like the band, um, the players, they have like this own little act that they put on and they each have their own characters and their own fandom and stuff. And I just, we got to go see it like in the pit next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I, I, had this migraine so like we sat on the back lawn i had earplugs in but it was still like even though i was in pain it was totally worth it it was so <laughs> it fun was so you guys good. so so good ghosts if you uh, are hearing this um backstage passes a high five anything shout out on social media you know the works papa and ghouls yeah if you hear this um fun fact for you so there's this other band that I love who's pretty small at this point. They only have like 15,000 followers. And their guitarist happens to also be the guitarist, the masked guitarist for Rhythm Guitar in Ghost. And I had reached out to that band a while ago, not knowing who it was, and just being like, yo, I love your music. And they actually responded to me. So there's a chance. <laughs> You you had a, a fandom moment. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, when I discovered Fangirl, that. Fangirl, that's what I meant. Well, I found... Okay, I went full-on detective mode. I figured out who this masked ghoul is. Yeah. I found his Instagram, and I saw the jacket that he wears in this other band, and I was like, huh, I've seen that jacket before, because it's very... It's bedazzled. Like, you can tell whose it is. And then I was like, it clicked. I just... You knew. I felt like Sherlock Holmes in that moment. Mm-hmm. Nice. Anyways, back to our story. Fun fact. Fun fact. So today you have the uh, Reddit stories. More so like an update in Utah's true crime world and some really fun stuff that I learned about being a coroner. Okay, right on. Yeah. And then uh, I have the historical story today. Sweet. Uh, Before we get started, just want to let you guys know that any images that are associated with our stories today, we will post those on our Instagram, Spooky Soup Podcast. If you also would like us to read a spooky story that you have written, you can submit that to us um, to our email, SpookySoupPodcast801 at gmail.com, or you can DM those to us on our Instagram. And once again, those uh, those can be... true they can be completely made up as long as they're spooky we would love to read them on the podcast all righty y'all let's get into it so utah is full of true crime cases for such a fun state on the outside looking in things look adventurous and sunny but the closer you look you will see that this is often a facade there's so much that goes on behind the curtain here Now, if you're familiar with any notorious true crime cases linked to Utah, you might also be familiar with The Cold Podcast, which is brilliantly done by KSL. Yeah, it's fantastic. Highly recommend. 
amazing podcast. They dive in. There are three seasons of Cold, and each focuses on a cold case in Utah. The first season is about Susan Powell. Season two is about Joyce Yost. And season three is about who we're going to be discussing, Cherie Warren. Now, Cherie has been missing since October 2nd, 1985, and there are two existing theories as to what happened to her. It's believed she left her work to meet up with her ex-husband and that he had something to do with her disappearance. But this is where things get tricky. There's also a chance that the sheriff at the time had something to do with it and was using his authority to manipulate evidence. Now, I'm going to read to you a recent article published by KSL. There was a break in the case. Investigators were sent to search around Kazi Reservoir last week to what could very well be a burial site where Cherie Warren might be laid to rest. Roy, police confirmed to KSL TV they plan to excavate a possible gravesite in the mountains near Kazi Reservoir Wednesday in connection with a 1985 cold case. Cherie Warren went missing October 2nd, 1985. She was a Roy resident at the time she went missing, and as of right now, we've not been able to locate her, Roy Police Sergeant Josh Taylor said. Police hope to determine whether their planned search site about 20 miles east of Ogden holds any evidence related to Warren's presumed murder nearly 40 years ago. Hopefully it is significant, Taylor said. Where this case is so old, anything is significant. The police effort follows years of investigative work by KSL's Cold Podcast into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren. Cherie was last seen by a coworker as she left an office building in Salt Lake City. She planned to meet her estranged husband, Charles Warren, at a nearby car dealership. Now it's unclear if Cherie ever made it to the dealership. Charles Warren later told police he'd called off that rendezvous and instead went jogging into downtown Ogden. Detectives were unable to corroborate this. They also learned Charles Warren and Cherie Warren had been in some heated disputes over alimony and child support in the weeks prior to her disappearance. Police suspicions of foul play increased six weeks into the investigation when Cherie Warren's car turned up abandoned in a parking lot of a Las Vegas casino. Detectives did not believe Cherie had driven that car to Las Vegas herself. Now, Charles Warren died October 2022, a year ago. He was never cleared as a suspect, but he was never arrested or charged with a crime related to Cherie's disappearance either. This is partly because Charles Warren was not the only suspect. Police also focused attention on an Ogden man named Kerry Hartman during the initial stage of the investigation. Hartman, 75, was a former Ogden Police Department reserve officer who dated Warren prior to her disappearance. In 1987, a Weber County jury convicted Hartman of first-degree felony, aggravated sexual assault, and burglary, burglary counts unrelated to Cherie's case. Hartman spent 32 years in prison as a result of that conviction. He repeatedly denied any involvement in Warren's disappearance when questioned by a cold case detective and a hearing officer in 2005. He has since been released as of March 2020. Now to Kazi Reservoir. Evidence in the Cherie Warren cold case has for decades led police to believe Warren's remains might rest somewhere in the mountains surrounding Kazi Reservoir. 
On April 4th, 1987, Roy Police and the Weber County Sheriff's Sheriff's Office received calls from an anonymous man who reported stumbling across the decomposed body of a woman a few miles from Causey Dam. The caller said the body was in a difficult-to-reach area where few people go. Quote, You have to cross a couple ravines, which are about two miles, two or three. It's real hard, the anonymous man said according to a transcript of the call. Searchers attempted multiple times to locate the body using that vague description but were unsuccessful. Police made public appeals, encouraging the anonymous, anonymous man to call back with more information, but he never responded. Around the same time, a witness who knew Carrie Hartman, that police officer, told police that he'd discovered Hartman trespassing on private property in the mountains near Causey Reservoir on October 6, 1985, four days after Cherie vanished. The witness, an elk hunting guide, reportedly said he wasn't sure why Hartman would have been on the mountain at that time. Detectives also learned in May of 1987 that several of Hartman's close personal friends owned lots in Causey Estates, which is a cabin subdivision adjacent to the reservoir. One of those friends told police he loaned Hartman a key to the gate for Causey Estates during that autumn of 1985, just prior to Warren's disappearance. The Weber County cold case investigator who questioned Hartman in 2005 asked him about his connections to Causey. In an audio recording of that interview obtained exclusively by Cold, Hartman denied visiting the Kazi area the weekend after she disappeared or having borrowed a key for the gate of Kazi Estates. Never, no, absolutely not, Hartman said. Now this is where things get even more weird. So you remember how I mentioned Joyce Yost, who was season two focus of the Cold podcast. Mm-hmm. So Cherie Warren is not the only Weber County woman missing under suspicious circumstances who might have ended up in the mountains surrounding Causey. In August of 1985, weeks prior to Cherie Warren's disappearance, a man named Douglas Lovell abducted Joyce Yost from her apartment in South Ogden. Lovell had sexually assaulted Yost months prior and plotted to kill her in order to prevent her from testifying at his upcoming trial. Lovell murdered Yost and hid her body. He then enlisted the help of his wife, Rhonda Butters, to dispose of evidence. The plot unraveled in 1991 when Butters confessed her involvement to a South Ogden police detective. The Weber County Attorney's Office granted Butters immunity in exchange for providing incriminating information about Lovell. In a recorded interview, Butters told a detective she dropped Lovell off outside Yost's apartment the night of Yost's murder. Then early the next morning, she said Lovell called her from a payphone inside of Ogden Canyon. Butters said she'd later asked what Lovell had done with Yost. He said he made her drive up the canyon and they went up by Causey, Butters said. He just stopped the car, got out of the car, and walked up this hill, and it wasn't very far off the road, and he didn't bury her very deep. Prosecutors filed a capital murder charge against Douglas Lovell in 1992, he pleaded guilty to the charge in 93 as part of an agreement with prosecutors that would spare him the death penalty so long as he led them to Yost's remains. In court, Lovell contradicted his ex-wife's assertion he'd taken Yost up by Causey. He instead directed police to a site along the old Snow Basin Road near Pineview Reservoir. 
Extensive searches there during the summer in 1993 failed to turn up any trace or gravesite of Yost's remains. The judge sentenced Lovell to die in 93, and he successfully appealed that, leading to a jury trial in March of 2015. A jury once again sentenced Lovell to die at the conclusion of the trial. He appealed the case, and his case is currently before the Utah Supreme Court. So, how does that tie together? Kazi Reservoir is a beautiful reservoir up in the mountains past Ogden Canyon, and it's no surprise that people would be there hiding bodies. Uh, we've gone there lots of times to kayak, and it's just covered in forest all around. It's way out of the way, and so it makes total sense why someone would hide a body there. It's actually, that sounds kind of silly to me because every time I've been there, it's always busy. There are like 100 people there every time, at least. Cliff jumping, kayaking, hanging out in the lake, whatever. So that to me, that's kind of silly that they would go there. I mean, yeah, that is true. Can't deny how busy it is. But you also can't deny how extensive the properties are up there and how it would be easy for someone to hide a body because it is just cliff sides. It would be really hard to get up on top of them. It's true. If you were an unsuspecting person. Now, can you believe that the anonymous caller has never come forward? I mean, you find remains of a decomposed woman up in the mountains but you won't give better directions as to where to find her. I understand wanting to remain anonymous, but that caller should have given better directions if they really wanted the corpse to be found, or else why would they have called in the first place? Perhaps this was the person who killed our victim? That's my guess, and he's playing a game. Yes, because oftentimes, you know, idiots make the best burglars because they always get caught. Same thing goes with killers. Now, there are no updates from what I can find online, so I hope they come up with something soon, whether or not the gravesite is real. But I also wonder, how did they know where to search? Did someone find something there? Did the anonymous caller finally call back after all these years? Only time will tell. Now, for my second story, it's more so just of some really interesting things that I found out about being a coroner, especially in Louisiana. Oh, interesting. So, there's a podcast called This Past Weekend with Theo Vaughn. <laughs> I freaking love Theo Vaughn. <laughs> I do, too. He's so funny. He's a roller coaster. He is. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> and on a recent episode, he had a coroner come on from the Deep South in Louisiana. And this coroner just shared some insane stories of his job there. And... So yeah, I just thought I would share some really interesting things that I learned about his job. So first of all, did you know that the coroner is the only person who can arrest a sheriff? No. What? Yeah, I did not know that, but that's what he said. Weird. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I believe that, but okay. And the coroner does not do autopsies. All that they do is they go to the scene where a body is and transport it to the people who do autopsies. Oh. Okay. They're just mailmen for dead people. Interesting. So what's the title of the people who perform the autopsies? Forensic pathologist or medical examiner, depending on the capacity of the government in which you work. 
That was a very educated answer. <laughs> I have looked <laughs> into this. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, did you know that if you have a cat, your cat will eat you within one to two hours of you dying? See, this is why I do not like cats. One of the many reasons. <laughs> dogs want dogs want to do that. There's a little asterisk by that. Oh, I suppose. And if too you soon. look down on the cliff note or the bottom notes of the page, you will find that wiener dogs eat their owners just like cats do. Yeah, but those are wiener dogs. You They're know. wiener That's dogs. That's not a real dog. <laughs> like who gave a wiener legs and told it to walk and bark? I don't know. Who gave a glizzy some legs? <laughs> <laughs> So the coroner was telling stories about times that he's encountered pets on the scene of a death. And in this one scene, he, so he walks in and he sees that the corpse is sitting down, but it has no head. And so he goes up to it and he realizes that within the time that the person has passed away, the cat has eaten the entire head, skull, teeth, and all from its owner and he was able to look down into the cavity of the person's rib cage. He was able to like see everything. It had started eating its neck and chest. Oh, wow. How? Like I can't imagine like chewing on a bone. They can do it. Their teeth are capable of it. Yeah. Which okay. is insane. Ugh. And he said that <laughs> he was like, I don't care how good of a relationship you have with your cat. Within one to two hours of you passing away, they will start eating you. And he was like, my advice is that you invest in a doggy door before you die so that your cat has a means to escape and won't eat you before your family finds you. Because could you imagine walking in on that? You would think like foul play took place, but no, it was just literally the pet who's sitting right next to your corpse. Ugh. That's horrible. Yeah. Awful. He talked about playing pranks with rookie cops who are new to the scenes and aren't used to the sights and smells. And he said that he can usually tell when they're getting really grossed out because they'll start like, they'll dry heave a little bit. Um, their eyes will water, stuff like that. And so he'll be like, hey man, this would help me a lot if you could just hold this syringe for me. And so they'll hold it and he'll have them standing there holding it for like an hour. <laughs> And he won't need the syringe. He'll be like, oh, you can give that back now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, he's This one, <laughs> this actually made me like laugh out loud while I was driving and listening to this. But he said that at a scene where someone has killed themselves by um, hanging, he will have a rookie cop stand below the corpse and he'll tell them to catch it as he cuts it down so that the corpse won't get further injured if it falls on the ground. And so they stand there, and they get ready to grab it with this giant bear hug. And as the corpse falls, they wrap their arms around it. And it always happens that <laughs> the corpse's mouth lands right in front of their face. And as they squeeze, that person's final breath of air comes out into the rookie cop's face. Oh. And so <laughs> not only do you get someone's like gross mouth breath, you get decomposing enzymes gas release right in your face that's like the worst prank you could ever pull on someone <laughs> i don't think i've heard of a worse prank that's awful awful 
So, yeah, if you're in Louisiana and you're a rookie cop, I suggest moving. <laughs> yeah, be careful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> depending on what parish you live in. <laughs> um, something else that he talked about that I found was really interesting is he the first thing that he does on a scene is he will check the person's fridge. And based on what's inside of their fridge, he can usually tell if the person died from natural causes or if the case will be foul play and will require a full-on investigation. And do you have any guesses as to why that is? Um, I'm going to guess, like, certain foods they ate that... Uh, actually, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you're on the right track. So he says that pretty much as it goes, the people who die of natural causes will have a lot of beer and a lot of really fatty or fried foods in their fridge. They won't have anything healthy. And then, yeah, sure enough, come to find out once autopsies performed, they died of a heart attack or some sort of disease that could have been prevented. In other cases, if he opens the fridge and he finds lots of leafy greens and lots of other veggies or meal prepped meals, it's quite obvious that this person was intending to live longer because that food would have gone bad. So they should have been eating it. And so that's when he knows, oh, this person was healthy, and yet they died suddenly, and now I'm here, so there's going to be an investigation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he said that's the very first thing he does is he checks the person's fridge. So if you want to get away with murder, you got to hurry and put a few beers. Put beer in it. Yeah, some (laughs) fried food in the fridge, at least in Louisiana. (laughs) At least in Louisiana. He also talked about how If you're traveling anywhere and you can avoid being on a double lane road, even if it adds time to your commute, you should avoid it at all costs. Um, His reason was that in Louisiana, the fentanyl crisis is massive. And he said that like half the time you're driving on the road and the person next to you has fentanyl in their system or beer or some other liquor because their culture of alcohol is really strong there. And so he said, if you can avoid just being in head-on two-lane roads at all costs, you should. It will save your life. Because he's like, you come within five inches, that person's intoxicated, and you have no idea, your life's over. Interesting. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Probably just will stay away from Louisiana, honestly. Probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Theo Vaughn made a comment about talk. Like growing up in the deep south and how a lot of his peers just didn't grow up with the greatest education. But his comment was, (laughs) you know, a lot of my friends never learned how to read, so they all committed suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Which just gives you a a hint at just how unhinged Theo Vaughn's podcast is. Yes. Yeah. Anyways, that's the story of being a coroner in the south. That's awesome. Um, I don't think we've had anything uh, as comedic as that on the podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm glad that you brought a sense of humor to today's episode because the story I'm about to tell you is very sad. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't win. <laughs> okay. All right. Whew. Whew. I need to take a breath. Not the last corpse's breath, though. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. All right. Okay. I'm not laughing anymore because it's not funny after this point. (laughs) It's not funny at all. It's not. Okay. 
I, sorry, are you ready? Yes. Are you done giggling? Yes. Liar. Okay, so I titled this story, The Man with the Hands. And trigger warning to everyone. In 1988, Tokyo, Japan, families received packages from an unknown sender. Inside these boxes included images of their missing children, clothing from the day the children went missing, and even their teeth. Letters were also included, and they read something like this. Mary, cremated, bones, investigate, prove. Tessa, interested. Cool. Stop laughing. Sorry. This is the story of the otaku killer. Su- I apologize. I'm going to butcher so many names right now, but I'm going to try my best. Sutomu Miyazaki was born August 21st, 1962, into a wealthy family. His father owned a newspaper printing business that was very successful. It's reported that his parents were so involved with work, uh, with the printing business, that they rarely gave any attention to Sutomu. And if they did, they would make sure to tell him to be successful in school. Do your best. Do your homework. They weren't going to pay for his future, so his parents made sure that they told him to work hard in school or he won't go anywhere in life. Sutomu was was extremely shy and very, very timid. He dealt with a lot of psychological and physical issues. The reason I call him the man with the hands is because he was born with a rare condition where his hand and wrist joints were fused together. These hands are just straight up horrifying. I'm going to show you a picture right now, and I have to say to me, they look like hands that you would find on Nosferatu. Are you ready? Yes. (gasps) Those are some hands. Oh my gosh. Why are they so long? They look like something out of a movie. Those look like my four-year-old drawings of hands. (laughs) Your drawings weren't that bad. (laughs) Or scary. So due to his condition, it was difficult for him to perform a lot of tasks that involved his hands and wrists. To give you a better idea of what I mean, if he wanted to rotate his hands to face palm down, he would have to rotate his entire forearm to do so. Also, he was not able to rotate his, rotate his palms facing up. There's a rumor, and this, okay, I couldn't find if this was actually real or not, but there's a rumor that says that he is the product of incest between his father and older sister. Not sh- Once again, not sure if that's true, but Google could be lying to me. This disability didn't stop him from being a great student, though. He aced all of his classes, but his hands always made him shy away from others. He was for sure a very timid person because of this, but, you know, he was a loner, essentially. Tsutomu became distracted in life. He became obsessed with pornography, and his grades in school eventually plummeted. Because of this, he was no longer able to attend the universities he dreamed of going to. At this point, his depression was just getting worse. 
he decided to enroll in a local community college where he could participate in taking crotch shots of the women of the women on campus. He would attend women's sporting practices so he could take pictures. I imagine him doing this, but like hiding in a bush or a tree, and he had his camera and just taking pictures. While attending college, he received devastating news that rocked his world. The only person in his life that showed any compassion to him, towards him, had passed away, his loving grandfather. To feel close to him, this is, this is how psychotic this man was. To feel close to him, he ate some of his grandfather's ashes. This, of course, this whole thing sent sent uh, Sutomu in an even more downward spiral of depression where his porn addiction became even worse and this is when he decided to commit the worst acts possible. After the death of his grandfather, his family noticed he was acting different in a bad way. It's those ashes, man. That Something in those ashes. No, those should have made him good. I'm guessing his grandpa was a good guy. Maybe it's like a little sprinkle of magic. A little salt bay. It is reported that he began to take pictures of his sisters when they were showering. When he was caught by his sisters, he attacked and beat them. He did the same to his mother when she approached him about, this, about taking these pictures. On August 22nd, 1988, the day after his 26th birthday, Tsutomu was out for a drive when he spotted a little girl named Mary Kono. He motioned to the little one to come over to him. She hopped in his car, and he drove them both to a wooded area and parked, the, parked his car under a bridge. After only a few minutes, this monster strangled Mary. He performed unspeakable act, acts to her corpse and buried her within a close proximity to his home. After only a few days, Sutomu returned to her body. He removed some of her body parts, including her teeth. He grinded Kono's bones into a fine powder and carefully placed them in a container. Alongside her teeth and photographs of her clothes, he included a disturbing postcard bearing the words, Mary, cremated, bones, investigate, prove. This macabre package was subsequently mailed to her family. Disturbingly, he kept her severed hands and feet in his apartment. And just so you guys know, these victims, they're young. They're like four years old, five years old, six years old. Young little girls. I'm not as excited about this story anymore. Yeah, told you. On October 3rd, 1988, Sutomu spotted his next victim. Her name was Masami Yoshizawa. She was walking down a rural, a rural road when he pulled up next to her. Just like Mary, he lured her into his car and drove to the same spot where he murdered Mary. He committed the same acts he did with with uh, with Mary and took Masami's clothing home. On December 12th of that same year, he attacked for a third time. After leaving a friend's house, Sutomu noticed a little girl playing by herself outside. Her name was Erika Nanba. He grabbed her and drove her to uh, drove to a deserted parking lot. This is when he did something different. He demanded that she undress so he could take nude photographs of her. Once he took all the images he wanted, he strangled Erica, covered her body with a sheet, 
and left her in the parking lot. He took her clothes and discarded them in a nearby wooded area. A few days later, Sutomu sent a letter to Erica's family with the following message. Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. On June 6, 1989, that is when he committed his worst act. Tsutomu approached another little girl named Ayako Nomoto. He spoke sweetly to her like he was her friend. After a short conversation, he reached out his elongated vampiric hand and guided Ayoko back to his car where he took pictures of her and strangled her. This time, he this is when he did something different. Instead of leaving the body, he brought it back to his apartment where he used it for necrophilia. He wanted more pictures of her, so what did he do? He propped up her corpse like it was a doll. He filmed it and himself with the body in all different kinds of positions. He left it there to rot in his apartment for a good while. When it, became, when it began to decay, he couldn't take the smell anymore, so he cut off the head and disposed of it and the torso in a local cemetery. However, after some time, this sicko couldn't live without her, so he returned to the cemetery and retrieved the body. He wanted to be close to it. The body was kept in his closet, but I'm sure he brought it out every now and then for his sick temptations. Sutomu could not take it anymore. He grabbed a knife, ran to his closet, cut off her hands so he could drink the little blood that was left inside. July 12th, 1989. This monster was finally stopped. Sutomu found his next victim. The girl remains unknown, but he tried to take his camera lens and stick it up the crotch of this little girl. The pervert had stripped down naked right before her father had noticed something weird happening. Her father ran over, scared Sutomu away, and the cops were called and waited for him to return back to his car that was left at the park. When a nude man came back to the park to get his car, the cops arrested him and took Sutomu to jail. When authorities were able to investigate his apartment, they found every single piece of evidence they needed to put him away for life. They found nude images of little girls, in, intense pornography, and of course, body parts of his victims. Sutomu Miyazaki was also known as the otaku killer, the rat man, Dracula, and the little girl killer. Now, I say rat man, but with everything I've just told you, I haven't mentioned a rat, right? Right. When Sutomu was on trial, he told a poorly executed story of how his alter ego, the rat man, was controlling him, making him commit these acts and murdering little girls. I so badly wanted to be in the room when he told this story just so I could laugh in his face and then shoot him myself. <laughs> yeah, me too. He was apparently very calm and forthcoming when talking about each crime he had committed. Some that were there say that he was blank in the face, completely content with his actions. It's like not a thought behind his eyes, you know, just like totally fine with what he did. His father was beside himself. He was shocked that his own child could do such evil things. He refused to get a lawyer to represent Sutomu. He was disgusted and embarrassed. 
Unfortunately, his father took his own life. He simply couldn't handle the trauma that was caused by his own son. When police questioned Tsutomu about how he decided to start killing, he replied saying that pornography started it started at all. He was addicted to it. No matter how hard he searched, it eventually became too boring for him. Even the child pornography he had in his possession wasn't enough. He said they black out the most important parts. Jeez. At the age of 45, Tsutomu Miyazaki was found to be of sound mind and was hanged for his crimes. His crimes have inspired many movies and TV shows such as Guinea Pig, The Rat Man, and some episodes of Criminal Minds and much more. That is the story of the man with the hands. Well, I hate him and his hands. I told you it was sad. It is sad. How am I supposed to go about the rest of my night? (laughs) Just think about a corner in Louisiana. (laughs) Maybe I'll listen to that episode again. (laughs) The Ovan quotes or something. Okay, fair enough. Oh my goodness. I've never heard of that one before. Are you ready to see what what this monster looks like? No. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Show me. Show me the rat bastard. Wow. Very normal. Not okay, not in that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate his hands. I Oh, he's a victim. Yeah, there you go. That is the rat man. Well, I'm sorry to uh bum everyone out with that story but uh you know it's the truth hopefully y'all have some ear bleach (laughs) somewhere in the house whether that's some good music or something funny to listen to because man i've been spooked thoroughly spooked and bummed out and Uh, bummed i apologize but that's just how it is okay do you have anything else for us today that's it for me all right guys we will scare you in the next one Stay spooky. Bye.